Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Lexicon Valley is sponsored by The Great Courses, offering engaging audio and video lectures taught by top professors. Courses like The Secret Life of Words, English Words and Their Origins. Right now, get up to 80% off the original price when you visit thegreatcourses.com lexicon. The following podcast contains explicit language. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Folo, and today, episode number 65, a new installment of Linguafile, wherein we discuss a mystery word or phrase with lexicographer Ben Zimmer. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bobby. How you doing, buddy? Splendid, thank you. And your own self? I'm great. I'm great. You and Ben are together in the same room, I understand. Yeah, this is only the second time I've actually seen the man face to face. And, uh, you know, it's, well, it's a delight. It's a good looking mug. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have to say it's, it is always a pleasure to share studio space with the illustrious Mr. Garfield. All right, enough about him. <laughs> what's, our, what's our clue for the week? Okay, we got a new word and uh, here's your clue. It's a four syllable word. It's a hyphenated word. And it also rhymes with a famous New York City musical landmark. Hmm. Hmm. Musical uh, Radio City, but that's not four syllables. What it rhymes with, though. Rhymes. Yeah, okay, so it could be Radio City. Nitty gritty. Bob sounded like he was on the right track. I can tell you that this landmark opened in 1973, closed in 2006. Hmm. So when did it open? 1973. Oh, I know. This is uh, CBGB's. That's right. CBGB. That's right. CBGB's. What is CBGB's? I never heard of that. I'm not being a New Yorker my own self. What? Wow. CBGB's is where the New York punk scene was born, the home of the Ramones oh, and Blondie. Oh, see, and... I didn't know that. Bob, the I'm things sorry. that you don't know sometimes <laughs> are astounding. Mike, they could fill the libraries of the world, the things that I don't know. And in popular culture... It's even more terrifying. 
<laughs> so CBGBs, just for Bob's edification, was started by Hilly Crystal as a club. And those initials, CBGB, actually stood for Country Bluegrass Blues. That was originally the music that uh, Hilly Crystal wanted to have in this club. The full title was actually CBGB and OMFUG, O-M-F-U-G. So that was actually a long acronym for Country Bluegrass Blues and Other Music for Uplifting Gourmandizers. Anyway, everyone just called it CBGBs. And it was mostly the other music that got played there. Yes, exactly. It became the haven for that other music and all the sort of famous punk acts of the The shouting 70s. music, as I think of it. <laughs> the kids and their shouting music. <laughs> and I don't like the way well, they swivel their hips either. Oh, no, no, no that's not punk. They, they just they, they were, just stand there. They were uh, pogoing, and, I think. Is what they... Yes, pogoing, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, defecating on the stage in some cases. <laughs> Gigi Allen may have done that a few times. You know, there was a great book uh, that came out in 2006 by a fellow named Stephen Bieber, and the title of the book is The Heebie-Jeebies at CBGB's, A Secret History of Jewish Punk. So many of the founding members of the punk movement in the U.S., from Lou Reed to Joey Ramone, were Jewish. Hilly Crystal, the owner of CBGB's as well. Wait a second. Lou Reed was Jewish? I had no idea. <laughs> anyway, the word is heebie-jeebies. That's right. The heebie-jeebies. How would you define that word? Heebie-jeebies are a feeling of discomfort, the kind of creepy crawlies, spilkes, a sense of extreme intense nervousness in reaction to some trigger that makes you feel like you have something crawling all over you. So I'm going to amend that definition just a little bit, Bob. I would say that spilkes is more towards the butterflies in your stomach, nervous end of the spectrum, and heebie-jeebies is more towards the creeped out end of the spectrum. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Uh, revised and amended. <laughs> I think you guys nailed it pretty well. In fact, when Bob started defining it, um, he started with a feeling of discomfort. That's exactly how the Oxford English Dictionary Starts its definition, a feeling of discomfort, apprehension, or depression, the jitters. Reading the OED again, Bob? <laughs> they channel me, not <laughs> vice versa. So, yeah, and spilkes, a great Yiddish word, a Yiddish for needles, uh, similar sensation or feeling of apprehension. And if you think about it, there are a bunch of words like that in English which take the same pattern you can say the blanks. So think about the jitters, the willies, the creeps, mm -hmm. the jumps. The jumps. There's also the screaming memes. Wait, let's go back to the jumps for a second. What are the jumps? Sure. The jumps, that's just another term for having a case of the nerves. Dates back to the 19th century. Hey, Mike, you're a little jumpy today. Yeah, I got the jumps big time. You're a little clappy, Bob. <laughs> I don't think you can ever be a little clappy. <laughs> You're either clappy or you ain't clappy. You're never a little clappy. <laughs> Do you guys know what the yips are? Sure. Yeah, the yips yeah. are in, uh, well, golf. for a golfer, right. it's, uh, you know, someone who keeps making the same mistake, usually while putting. That's right. And that got transferred over to baseball, too. So some baseball players who suddenly lost the ability to field the ball, uh, Chuck Knobloch, famously, Steve Sachs, they were both second basemen. Second basemen, baseman, yeah. So the blanks, you know, that's kind of a pattern that also extends to mumps, measles, rickets, shingles, all these plural forms. Even pox, P-O-X, as in chicken pox, started out as the plural form of pock, P-O-C-K. 
another kind of linguistic tradition in English is what we might call rhyming reduplication. It's a word that contains its own rhyme. And a lot of these in English start with the letter H, and very often they're words that connote some sort of recklessness, chaos. Helter-skelter. Helter-skelter. Harem-scarum. Higgledy-piggledy. Hugger-mugger. Hodgepodge. Hurly-burly. Some that might not exactly fit the pattern of chaotic situations still might evoke that. So, you know, a hurdy-gurdy or saying hocus-pocus for magic. How does the letter H become the default consonant for all of these doubly-wubblies? <laughs> Once one or two of these get planted in the language, then it kind of sets a template for the others to follow. They really start cropping up in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. And another example, going back to the episode that we did on discombobulate, you might remember I talked about a famous Anglo-Indian glossary called Hobson-Jobson. And that term actually starts off as this weirdly anglicized version of the shout of Shiite Muslims during Muharram, where they're saying, Ya Hassan, Ya Hossein. And then the English colonials just call that Hobson-Jobson because it's just a bunch of noise out there. <laughs> but the, <laughs> it's, the, it's the wogs and their Hobson-Jobson. And their Hobson-Jobson. It's Jobson. just so horrible. Yeah, it is. But, but it does give you a sense of just how much this pattern is ingrained in the language that you could hear, oh, those people talking that strange language, you end up hearing it as Hobson-Jobson. Hi, I'm Mark Oppenheimer, the host of Unorthodox, a new podcast from Tablet Magazine. Each week, Unorthodox dissects the news of the Jews with conviction and with wit. But, you know, we're not just for Jews. We also invite in a guest non-Jew to ask us questions and even occasionally offer some constructive criticism of the chosen people. Immediately off the top of my head, you guys have way too many holidays. You really do need to edit the list down. You can listen to Unorthodox each week on iTunes.com slash Panoply or at TabletMag.com. So getting back to heebie-jeebies, you said a lot of these emerged in late 19th, early 20th century. Is that the case for heebie-jeebies? It is, and this is one that we can actually date very precisely. I know that uh, some of uh, the words we've talked about haven't had very tidy uh, explanations about where they come from. Some. But <laughs> I think <laughs> okay, just a about lot. all. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I like the messy ones, but, you know, sometimes we got to go with one where we know pretty much exactly the day that heebie-jeebies first entered the English language. And wow. that is very rare that you can say that about a word. About any word, yeah. If we think back to the story of quiz for the episode we did on quiz and quaz, mm -hmm. that very enticing story about the Dublin theater owner who just says, yeah, I'm going to invent a word and everybody's going to use it. That type of story very rarely actually is based on any kind of truth because it's very difficult to do that. In order for you to just introduce a word in the language, you have to be in the right place at the right time. And it also helps if you have a lot of cultural influence you have the proper channels to popularize the word and get mainstream acceptance for the word. That is the case with the heebie-jeebies. Wow. So somebody, some person actually coined that phrase and it then became popular? Like someone with a radio show, like Fred Allen, or was it from Vaudeville, or, or what? Well, it was actually in print first before it was heard on the radio or on stage. 
Well, it seems to me that it would be absolutely impossible if this was, in fact, coined by a person to pinpoint knowing no other clues. Well, you can narrow it down. It's obviously someone with a lot of what they now call reach, which means it's a syndicated columnist or a novelist, nonfiction writer who is widely distributed. What was the year you said, Ben? I did not say the year yet. The year was 1923. I don't know who was the default. F. Scott Fitzgerald. Uh, who was the big columnist of 19... 19- well, it wasn't a columnist. I can tell you the, the man who might have had more cultural influence than anyone else in 1923 was named Billy DeBeck. Ah, oh, Billy oh. DeBeck. Mike! <laughs> Billy D. <laughs> it, it, it turns out it was Billy DeBeck. <laughs> Billy. I know him as Billy D. <laughs> Billy D. Yeah. All right, Ben. A uh, quick follow-up question. Yes. <laughs> Who the fuck is Billy DeBeck? <laughs> Billy DeBeck was <laughs> you're, a very... Is, you're making this up, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we never really planned for the possibility that he would come in here and just punk us. You know, we, we believe him. We have trust in this guy, but he could say anything like this obviously invented name, Billy DeBeck, <laughs> and we would be none the wiser. All right, all right. Let me tell you who Billy DeBeck is. You will believe me once I tell you who he is. Billy DeBeck was a cartoonist. Billy DeBeck had the most popular comic strip of 1923, a comic strip that was so famous they wrote songs about it in 1923. They had lots of merchandise about it in 1923. It's not Little Orphan Annie. That's no. Depression era. No, this like is the Roaring Cats and 20s. Jammer Kids or the it's Yellow Kids. Later kid. than Cats and Jammer Kids. That starts off earlier. Nancy and Sluggo. <laughs> you guys don't know any uh, songs from the 1920s that were based on comic strip characters? I know a few from the Ramones. I used to hear them <laughs> up at CBGB's. There you go. <laughs> Think of a little guy with a top hat and tails. And let's say he has very big eyes. Mr. Moneybanks from the Monopoly game. Well, he looks a little like that, but imagine him with much bigger eyes. In fact, you could call his eyes... Felix the Cat. No. Felix the Cat did not wear a top hat and tails. This is a human. His eyes were so big, you might actually call them googly eyes. Oh, with the googly eyes. With the googly eyes. It's on the tip of your tongue. Yeah, it's. Uh, I used to sing this so often with Billy DeBeck back in the day. <laughs> I just like watching Bob kind of twist in the wind this here. Is so terrible. <laughs> <laughs> this is so terrible. Ben is watching me actually have a series of small strokes, is what's happening. <laughs> Oh dear. Barney Google. Barney Google. Google. Barney Google. the paradise. When St. Peter saw his face, he said, Go to the other place. Barney Google with the Google Google eyes. Google Google. That was an ordeal. <laughs> that was a huge hit. A huge hit in nineteen twenty three, that song. You know, it's funny that we're having this conversation because I'm told that Barney Google not only had Google googly eyes, he also occasionally had the heebie-jeebies. Well, in fact, he did. He did often have the heebie-jeebies, and he also had a racehorse that very often had the heebie-jeebies. When Barney Google got really popular in 1922, the reason for the popularity is that Billy DeBeck introduced a horse named Sparkplug to the comic strip, 
This was owned by Barney Google, and Barney Google would try to race the horse. Well, he was not the jockey. He had a jockey named Sunshine. But he would enter the horse into various horse races and try to get this horse, which was not exactly the finest-looking horse. It was kind of sad-looking. It very often was covered in a blanket with patches and its name on it. And he would try to cajole this horse into winning horse races. And believe it or not, when he started this storyline with... Barney Google and the horse Sparkplug, or Sparky for short, it became this national sensation. So that in 1923, you had this famous novelty song, Barney Google with the goo-goo googly eyes. There was another song that same year called Come On Sparkplug. One young kid who really enjoyed this was Charles Schultz, who would later go on to make the Peanuts comic strip. His nickname given to him by an uncle was Sparky. Sparky. Exactly, yes, Sparky. Yeah. That's where he got his nickname from, from that horse. So, I mean, it kind of was emblematic of the funny pages um, in the 1920s. Did either of you watch Boardwalk Empire? I did not. Well, for fans of that show, they will remember that song, Barney Google with the goo-goo googly eyes, comes in in the, uh, I believe it's the finale of season three, Bobby Cannavale's character, Gip Rossetti, starts singing the song at a very crucial moment. I won't reveal what happens, but it was a very well-placed song because that, that episode actually took place in 1923 when this whole Barney Google fad was really taking off. I can sort of see flappers dancing to it with their bob haircuts and <laughs> uh, sequined short skirts. It definitely fit that whole scene of the Roaring Twenties, and Barney Google himself at least appeared rich, but he was always trying to come up with get-rich-quick schemes that never quite worked out. And Billy DeBeck actually also had the innovation of having continuity in comic strips, which was never a really big thing before this, where you would carry the storyline through many, many days of strips. So people would want to come back and find out, did Sparkplug really win that race? What's going to happen? You know, So building up a bit of excitement about this storyline. Let's take a brief pause here. If you listen to the very end of this episode, you will hear Bob say how much fun he had. You will hear him say how fascinating it was to hear Ben take us through the various twists and turns related to heebie-jeebies. And he's right. It was fun. It was fascinating. But this show only comes out once every two weeks. Imagine getting 36 episodes all at once. That is essentially what The Great Courses offers with The Secret Life of Words, English Words, and Their Origins. It is 36 30-minute episodes of languagey, linguistic-y greatness taught by the fantastic Anne Curzan. And you can get it for up to 80% off the original price. Think about it. At the end of each of those 30-minute episodes, you will say what Bob says at the end of this episode. That was really fun and really fascinating. So go to thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon for this special offer of up to 80% off the original price. That's thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. Okay, back to our conversation about heebie-jeebies. So it was in this comic strip, Ben, that the term heebie-jeebies first appeared? We do know that on October 26, 1923, in... This comic strip, Barney Google and Sparkplug, that word heebie-jeebies appears, and Billy DeBeck must have really liked it because he kept using it over and over again in subsequent strips through 1923, 1924. 
So if you were Billy DeBeck and you wanted to uh, introduce a word, you actually had the power to do that because he had started off in newspapers owned by William Randolph Hearst. Hearst obviously had his big empire. But then as this comic strip grew in popularity, it was being syndicated all over, read by everybody. And so if Barney Google starts using that word heebie-jeebies, then other people were just going to be picking it up right away. And we can actually see that happening as the years unfold, 1923, 1924, and so forth. Time passes. I'm seeing the calendar pages <laughs> flipping through my mind. So what was the context in which this word first appears? What's happening in the panels of the comic strip? Okay, I feel a little like Fiorello LaGuardia when he was uh, reading the comic strips uh, during the newspaper strike in New York. I will try to channel the spirit of Fiorello LaGuardia as I recite the strip from October 26, 1923. Okay, so you have Barney Google there with his kind of broken down racehorse spark plug. And he is, as usual, cajoling the horse in advance of a big race. And in this particular race, he's actually gotten a judge to bet $10,000 that the horse would win, but this creates added problems, added nervousness, you might say, because the judge says that he's going to throw him in jail if, uh, if the horse loses. So Barney Google is saying to Sparkplug, Sparky, old pal, tomorrow is the great day. Tell your papa that you're going to cop the cup. You're going to win the race. You know Judge McCracken has bet 10 grand on you. If you blow the show, he'll have me in chains till my beard is a mile long. You ain't going to disappoint your papsy, no siree. Look at me with those liquid brown eyes and show me you're on the up and up. And then he gets angry and he starts kicking Sparkplug and he says, You dumb ox, why don't you get that stupid look off of your pan? You give me the heebie-jeebies. And in the final panel, he's on the phone and he's saying, Hello, in case Sparkplug loses tomorrow, I'll be open to a proposition. Yeah, how much are you paying for old horses these days? Oh, Sparkplug's <laughs> going to the glue factory. <laughs> Jeez, there's a lot of nastiness going on in this strip here. Yeah, there's a lot of horse kicking going on and, and other implied threats of violence. But Sparkplug never gets seriously hurt, mm. even if he just gets a little kicked, let's Still, say. Still, I'm sure PETA would, if they existed in... The 20s would have the Spilkus Wilkus. <laughs> well, the way that Billy DeBeck spells it in this strip is a little different from how we see it today. He spelled it H-E-E-B-Y-J-E-E-B-Y-S. Now, he continued to use this word in subsequent strips, and he eventually decided on the spelling that we're more familiar with, with the I-E instead of the Y in there. And it seems from that context that he's using heebie-jeebies more specifically to say, you're making me nervous. You're reducing my confidence that you're going to win this race tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. So the earliest examples in this comic strip are in that form. You give me the heebie-jeebies. And in fact, after this particular storyline, Sparkplug actually loses that race and Barney Google has to uh, escape from the judge's wrath. He starts a new storyline. He says he's going to give up on horse racing for now, and he, now he's going to speculate in the stock market, popular thing to do in 1923. He's decided he's going to do that by buying a lot of shares of a stock in the Belgian Hair Tonic Company. And you can imagine how that goes. <laughs> so in a comic strip that starts that storyline, on November 1st, you know, very shortly after that first one, Barney Google is saying, those clowns around the broker's office give me the heebie-jeebies. Over the next several months, as this 
got used in the comic strip a lot. It wasn't Barney Google who has the heebie-jeebies. It was the horse, Sparkplug, who has the heebie-jeebies, and that prevents him from running a race properly. And so that's this constant struggle that Barney Google and his jockey Sunshine have is how do we deal with this intransigent horse that is not going to race very quickly because it has the heebie-jeebies. It becomes more of a medical condition Mm. that the horse has. Well, for starters, you might want to stop threatening the horse so much. Maybe he wouldn't be getting so nervous. (laughs) That's a fine suggestion. Now, now hold on a second. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Just one second here. You know, I know you were delighted to be able to report that you could isolate to the day that heebie-jeebies got its first coinage. And the way that Debeck uses it so extravagantly in, in subsequent strips does argue for it having been a neologism that he really liked and is just going to flog as long as he can, right? So on the other hand, in the first strip where it shows up, it's in the midst of all this other slang and dated lingo that makes me think, well, if he's using this word, which is very much of, of its period, and that word, which is very much of its period, why can't we just assume that heebie-jeebies was also taken from the popular vernacular of the day? Well, it is possible. We can't say 100% sure that Billy DeBeck was the one to come up with that. Perhaps he heard it from someone and he decided to put it in his trip. But the thing to remember about Billy DeBeck, though, is that he was very creative with his use of language. Other terms that were not so successful worked their way into the strip, like hotsy totsy, another case of rhyming reduplication, oski wow wow. Horse feathers has been attributed to him as well. He definitely was weaving in the the slang of the 1920s in his strips, but he seemed to be coming up with his own examples too. And he was in this position of being able to make this happen the way that fetch can't happen in Mean Girls, or you know, this is slang that can happen because he has this almost like a bully pulpit that allows him to spread this language. And heebie-jeebies is the best example of that. Mm. So Ben, did Debeck? live to see his own word kind of rise in prominence in the vocabulary of just ordinary people? He certainly did, because it only took a few years for it to become a very, very popular term. So the early popularity comes from these comic strips that pretty much everybody was reading. But as I was looking through the newspaper archives, I was finding that there were actual stories in the sports pages of newspapers. I think they must have been newspapers that were either owned by William Randolph Hearst, or at least they carried stories from his international news service. It was the wire service that Hearst had started. And these stories treat Barney Google as a real person who is actually entering his horse, Sparkplug, in a $100,000 cross-continental race from New York to California. What? Yeah. When I first came across it, I was like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Why is this actually being printed as if it was a real thing? Are you sure this was Hearst in the 20s and not Fox and Friends last week? (laughs) Maybe this was Hearst's idea. I mean, Hearst was the early supporter of Billy DeBeck. I wouldn't be surprised if he came up with this idea. I got it. We're going to plant stories in the sports pages where people will want to not just read the comic strip, but they're actually going to be following this fake story. Say, that'll be swell. (laughs) So here's just an example. This is from December 15th, 1923. Okay, so just a month and a half or so after heebie-jeebies starts getting used. And it says, uh, Barney Google's spark plug, 
dashed under the wire in the lead here. It's Kansas City is the dateline on this one in the great $100,000 cross-continental race from New York to California. And so it's describing how Sparkplug has managed to come first in this leg of this fictitious race at the same time that Barney Google is trying to find ways to stave off periodic attacks of the horsey heebie-jeebies. And this term heebie-jeebies continues to be used throughout this article. It has an interview with Barney Google <laughs> as if he was a real person. You know, Ben, as, as, as someone who plies uh, his trade in you know, my day job as a uh, media critic, <laughs> I have to conclude that there are some ethical issues attached <laughs> to this campaign. <laughs> Just a few, yeah. It has Barney Google addressing the reporters in Kansas City who have supposedly gathered, and he's talking about how he's trying to treat the heebie-jeebies that Sparkplug is suffering from. He says that he was going to uh, grab some short-order medical education when I reached Kansas so that he could have a sign out front that said, Barney Google MD, heebie-jeebie specialist. And then at the end it says, however, murmured Google, one of you bright reporters exposed my intended alma mater as a diploma mill, and that temporarily kills my hope of becoming a heebie-jeebie specialist soon. Wow, I'm surprised that the phrase diploma mill existed back then. <laughs> <laughs> but that's another think... episode. I'm curious, a little uh, homework for you, Ben, but if the word Google as the number with a million zeros after it was coined with a hat tip, with a big top hat tip to Barney Google. Well, in fact, I believe it was. The name of the number Google, which is spelled G-O-O-G-O-L, was coined in the 1930s by a mathematician named Edward Kasner. And when he was trying to think of a name for this very large number, he asked his nine-year-old nephew to suggest a word. And guess what? That kid loved comic strips. The nephew suggested Google. And so Kasner just changed the spelling a little to G-O-O-G-O-L. And, you know, the Google search engine was inspired by that number, but actually returns it to the spelling of Barney Google, G-O-O-G-L-E. Hey, so Mike, don't fit. you hate those kids who have their homework done, you know, before they even get off the school bus? I hate those kids. And just so we don't get pedantic letters, I believe Google, the number, is a one, not with a million zeros, but with a hundred zeros. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 10 sorry, to the hundred. Sorry, yeah. I beg your pardon. We'll still get pedantic letters. <laughs> right, just not about that. <laughs> <laughs> so heebie-jeebies suddenly is all over the place. It becomes the name of a dance. It becomes the name of a magazine on the south side of Chicago. It's called heebie-jeebies. It also gets worked into various songs of the day as well. Songs that do not actually refer specifically to Barney Google, the way that the songs of 1923 had, but songs that describe the condition of the heebie-jeebies. So in other words, totally divorced from the context of a horse that spooks easily. That's right. I mean, you didn't have to be thinking about Sparkplug the horse when you said the heebie-jeebies, even though that was the initial push that got it into the public consciousness. By about, let's say, 1926, it was just a common term that people were using in a funny way to describe a kind of a nervous state. And perhaps there were a lot of people with nervous excitement back in that time period, the jazz era. And so heebie-jeebies seemed to fit the zeitgeist pretty well. Wait, wait, Ben. So you mentioned that heebie-jeebies was the name of a dance? What did the actual moves look like? In this case, it seemed that there started to be a dance that people talked about circa 1925 called the Heebie-Jeebies. And then people wanted to make music to accompany this dance. 
And so a song was written in early 1926 by a songwriter named Boyd Atkins. He just wrote an instrumental tune. This was just supposed to be a tune that you could dance to. You could do the heebie-jeebies, which involved various nervous moves, let's say. <laughs> they should have called it St. Vitus Dance. <laughs> well, if you think about the jitterbug, which came a little mm-hmm. later, mm-hmm. That, that's a dance from the 30s. Think about the jitterbug and the jitters. It was a similar type of thing, that the movements might evoke a, a nervous quality. We recently did an episode, Ben, of Lexicon Valley about translating Seinfeld, so Seinfeld is very fresh in my mind. I'm picturing Elaine's dance. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the dance really takes off, though, in 1920 because of a very popular song and a song that's actually very important and influential in the history of jazz because that songwriter Boyd Atkins happened to know a young band leader named Louis Armstrong. They had played together in a Mississippi riverboat band. So Boyd Atkins goes to his friend Louis Armstrong with this instrumental tune called the Heebie-Jeebies and says, here you go, can you record this? And so Louis Armstrong records it with his band, the Hot Fives, and he writes the words. Louis Armstrong writes the words that go along with the song. And there's this very famous story in the history of jazz about how Louis Armstrong comes to the recording session with his lyrics to this new song, The Heebie-Jeebies, and halfway through recording the song, he drops the piece of paper with the lyrics on it. But he continues singing... In a kind of scat? Exactly. Ah. It's definitely not true that Louis Armstrong just invented scat singing on the spot because he dropped his piece of paper. You can find recorded examples of this nonsense syllable singing, scat singing, going back to 1911. But Louis Armstrong became very famous for this. And and actually, other people in the band corroborate the story that he really did drop that piece of paper. Whether he already had some idea of how he was going to scat sing this, I don't know. But they recorded it as is. The recording label OK, spelled O-K-E-H, Loved it, put it out in May 1926, and the recording very quickly became extremely popular. It was the biggest selling record that Louis Armstrong had had by that point. It sold something like 40,000 records in just a few weeks. Woo! Got the heebie jeebies! What you doing with the heebies? I just had to have the heebies! There's a great description by uh, Mez Mezro, who was this jazz clarinetist who was looking back. He remembers when that song came out, and he said, for months thereafter, you would hear cats greeting each other with Louis' riffs when they met around town. I got the heebies, one would yell out, and the other would answer, I got the jeebies. And the next minute, they were scatting in each other's face. (laughs) (laughs) So this song, the heebie-jeebies, in a way put Louis Armstrong on the map in 1926. And it also put the dance on the map. The record label, OK, realized that they had this hit on their hands, and so they wanted to promote the dance that went along with the song. And they got a woman named Miss Tweedy to pose in the various steps of the heebie-jeebie dance. I'll just tell you the names of the moves, the steps that Miss Tweedy posed in. There was the get-off, the stomp-off, the fling-off, the heebie-off, the jeebie-off, and the blow-off. Wow. It's comprised entirely of offs. Yeah, it, it actually, it sounds like a uh, 
an Ashkenazi investment banking firm. <laughs> GB off and GB off. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was a story that actually circulated when this dance was becoming popular starting then in 1926 that this dance was supposed to be like the movements that would accompany the incantations of a witch doctor before a human sacrifice. This was actually the way that the dance was described, <laughs> believe it or not. People were supposed to have been familiar with this. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> we'll just do that. This dance actually had spread to the United Kingdom. By the end of 1926, there was a newspaper article from the Manchester Guardian, December 13th, 1926. The headline is Back to Barbarism. Is talking about how this new dance had been introduced, and it describes it in very racist terms. It says, To the spasmodic, convulsive, and negroid movements of the Charleston, there is now to be added, we gather, a yet more savage and primitive mode. The heebie-jeebie, like its predecessors, comes from America, and then it goes on to describe the shivering and the hopping and the stamping that people would be doing when they were when they were engaged in this dance and how it was just a return to our primitive roots. Another description said it was rich in haunch movements. <laughs> <laughs> I think of dancing generally as rich in haunch movements. I don't think the minuet is thick <laughs> with haunch movements. <laughs> So that was 1926. 30 years later, 1956, Little Richard had a great song called The Heebie-Jeebies, which was not related to the Louis Armstrong song, but the nervous energy that propelled rock and roll fit quite nicely when Little Richard was singing about the heebie-jeebies. I'm a bad luck, babe, put a drink on me. I got heebie-jeebies, all the feel so sad. I got heebie-jeebies, why you make me mad? Well, listen, boys, this is as much fun as I have had in any of these conversations. I just can't believe how much Ben continued to spin out. This has been a blast. The question remains, though, getting back to Spilkis, where exactly is the Connecticut Zoink? <laughs> we'll have to save that for another episode. <laughs> ben, as always, thanks so much. Thank you. You know, I, I had a little bit of the heebie-jeebies coming into this one, but I feel I feel much more relaxed now. If you're feeling a little spilkis and want to send us a note, please write to us, lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. Follow us on Twitter at lexiconvalley and subscribe to our feed in iTunes. Joel Meyer is our managing producer. Andy Bowers is our executive producer. Ben will have more on the word heebie-jeebies in his Word Roots column this week at vocabulary.com. A special thanks to WNYC for letting us use their studio today. All right, boys. We done here? Yeah, we're done. Laters, gators. <laughs>